way we're failing to communicate with the material that we use, with the people within communities, the people yeah. that we serve. And I always think when I'm thinking about creating a makerspace, who am I serving? Who is my audience? And we're back. Uh, session 16, an interview with Christina Pay. This Should Work has, has been offline for about a month or so as, uh, as we get through the holidays and um, some other fun work at DePaul where we're uh, hopefully cross your fingers, building a, a second makerspace that'll be part of uh, the network that, uh, that I've been working on for the past couple years. So thank you for your patience, um, and uh, I'm excited for you to listen to this episode. Uh, in, in episode 16, Christina and I um, talk about maker education. Uh, we talk about, um, you know, the, the uh, educational philosophy um, behind integrating uh, making into the classroom. And uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Christina. I've known her for quite some time. She's an awesome person. And I hope you enjoy this as much as, as I did. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please subscribe to This Should Work podcast. Um, share it out to your friends so that we can get the love out there. Uh, and thanks for listening. So without further ado, uh, number 16 with Christina Pei. Okay, so this is session 16 with, I know I've, I've like done four months now and I haven't quit, so I think this has got legs. Um, 16 with uh, Christina Pei, I'm sorry, I didn't get to say her name. So, so Christina Pei, and Christina, Christina runs um, Northside uh, Mini Maker Fair, which I think a lot of people know you from. Um, I'm really excited to talk about some of the work you just did with Pumping Station 1, too. So I hope that... <laughs> of course. Um, and then you're about to. How soon uh, will you will you get your degree from Northwestern? <laughs> okay. The way PhD was work. Yes. There is no how soon. It's whenever <laughs> I finish. Okay. Yeah, whenever yeah, yeah. the work dictates and it's a slow slog. Yeah. Dissertations take time. Yeah. And um, so I want to talk about some of your work there, too, yeah. because it's very focused around um, making and... Um, particularly uh, around equity and, and uh, issues of, um, uh, you know, I guess it would be meeting students kind of or meeting people who engage in those communities uh, where they're at. So I'm, I want to talk about all of these um, things. The way that I start this out usually, though, is by not talking about any of those things, sure. um, but by talking about what it is that, so, that you're working on. So I find that like a lot of people who make things mm -hmm. tend to do that for other people. They almost always, all of their work has to do with others. And so what I'm always interested in is if there's like a little side project, a little something that like, that, that you've got, that's your thing. Mm -hmm. um, because it's kind of, it gives me like, like a micro scale of where maybe some of your, you know, thinking comes from. <laughs> what do you, so, and this might be a hard question. Most people answer and it ends up that they're working on something for somebody else too. Yeah, <laughs> I know, that's just it. So many of my projects. Yeah. If not for someone else, it's with someone else. Mm -hmm. So I think because I'm a person who likes to build communities of makers, people ask yeah. me, what do you make all the time? And I think they're expecting some kind of physical product. Yeah. But even the way I got into making, um, I was doing lock picking, but I wasn't like picking locks in my spare time kind of thing. <laughs> I was teaching people about security and locks and I was working uh. with kids and that was really fun for me. So even that was like, I was building a community of yeah. people to gain more knowledge about lock picking. 
why lockpick? Well, lockpicking is one of the things that um, you go to hacker conferences and yeah. there's like a lockpicking village. What got you into, what, what attracted you to lockpicking in particular? Um, so I got into hackerspaces from the very beginning, back when there were only three, I think, or four. It was like HackDC, NYC Resistor, um, uh, Mitch Altman's space um, in Noisebridge. There we Noise go. Noisebridge. Noisebridge mm -hmm. and Pumping Station One. Right. So um, when I went to hackerspaces, a lot of that focus was on like the techie side of things. Yeah. And I never really considered myself a techie person, although mm. I think that's partly because of how I was framing myself in the world. I don't think mm -hmm. I'm not a techie person. Certainly that right. has evolved and changed as I've like tinkered with a lot more things. Yeah. But back then I was very much in the camp like, I don't know that this is for me. Okay. Um, but the things that didn't involve the blingy lights and the computers <laughs> and microcontrollers, um, they were limited. And one of the things was lock picking. It was so yeah. mechanical and um, so with your hands and Mm. playing around and understanding something physical that it just it spoke to me interesting that's so lock picking um you mentioned that it's mechanical do you think that there's like a way of thinking that is similar to a lot of other things that are happening at hackerspaces and, and in these kind of creative places what is it about the uh, you know well, yeah so i'm going to borrow an analogy from yeah. the uh, grandfather of constructionist theory yeah. in learning. Seymour Papert in mm -hmm. his book uh, Mindstorms yeah. opens with um, a story of the gears of his childhood. Mm. And a lot of people in constructionism um, think of that as an analogy for having this tool to think with. Mm. Um, and for him, the gears were this way of his entryway into mathematics, into logic oriented thinking. Um, and I think, like, what I'm, I'm hoping this is what you're getting at with, yeah. like, how different um, hackers and makers come to a project. They have their own powerful object to think with. Yeah. It's their own sort of mechanized way of piecing the world together. Yeah. Um, and lockpicking is one such analogy. Yeah. Uh, where it's not gears, it's like spring loaded pins and tumblers. And yeah, um, yeah but it's one way to, to, to get into this idea that everything is hackable and understandable mm. okay and openable yeah and changeable yeah that's so is it would you consider okay so i um one of my interviews that i did was with this guy his name is hayne bayless mm -hmm. and he's um he's a potter a pretty well respected potter out of connecticut and um he was talking about like the generative i'm paraphrasing of course but like the generative properties of clay like how when he works with material how he's following its currents um and it seems like you know when we're talking about these objects whether they're locks or something else is there is there like for you with locks or with other people is there like a is that a material almost like you're following its properties like you're following it, i can see that it, a flow like a way of thinking that's, i like that i think so um, I think my the crux of my work is not with materials. I, for me, the crux of my work is always with people. Yeah. So um, mm. I think a lot of the times when working with groups of people, we get lost in our own trail of thought about where we're going. And the harder thing to do is to listen. Mm. And this, I'm going to make an, uh, a metaphor with the, the clay and say, like, mm -hmm. people have certain currents. 
Yeah. And to really understand where they're coming from, you kind of just want to flow with them. Yeah. And see where they're going. And if you follow a person to the natural progression of their life thoughts and instincts, you'll get something really rewarding out of it. Yeah. And I think that is a driving force for all of my work. Like when I created Maker Fair the first time, I was really intent on building something that represented the community. Mm -hmm. And that meant just a lot of meetings with kids and with teachers and with people not involved with the school. Yeah. What do you make? What do you think you can bring? Are you interested in participating in this community? What does this community mean to you? What is making to you? Yeah. Um, and everyone comes at it from a different answer. I got a snarky answer from a teenage boy that said, <laughs> I make babies. And I was like, oh, you do not make babies. You're a baby. Right, right, um, <laughs> right. And even when the actual, when he grows up, he's not actually the one making. <laughs> I'm just... I'm speaking from experience. I would never try to claim that, you know. <laughs> That's funny. So, so you you're 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 looking at people almost like they're and I'm hopefully paraphrasing correctly, they're a kind of material to to work with as well. Well, I don't want to think of people as a material, but I think <laughs> I think the the uh, metaphor holds is yeah. that um, people who listen to material really well to make yeah. beautiful art um, in order to make beautiful communities, yeah, uh, you really have to be in tune with the people within those communities. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to reduce like the specialness of what makes a human a human, <laughs> but I think it's an interesting like way to think about people is that they're oriented within a universe of ob other things. Yeah, and you're not necessarily philosophically thinking about it. You may not necessarily have primacy over a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. You're right. It's useful for me to think of people as just another object sometimes within a larger universe of things and how they yeah. interact with each other. I feel like we're getting into like indigenous ways of knowing. Hmm, interesting. Like if you listen to how um, people from like indigenous tribes to Chicago yeah. don't think of like, oh, we are people in Chicago, look at the buildings we've built, right? right. So indigenous ways of knowing are very much like we are just another part of this greater world and yeah. we speak to the earth and then the river speaks to the earth, the lake speaks to the earth, the trees hmm. do, and we have equal footing here. Yeah. Um, and so when we talk about like materials having certain like properties and flow and trees having certain properties and people having certain properties, right. it's all like part of a bigger picture and we have to coexist and um, communicate with each other. So is this a maker thing that we're talking about now or have we, like is this, what's what about this is related to, um, you know, all of your work, if anything, all of the work that you're doing is—is is there anything that, uh, between these two things that that touch? I think so. I mean, yeah. because um, if you really think about making, I think there's something that's happening here that I find very worrying. Yeah. That the word making is getting trademarked, mm. and it's getting trademarked in a way where people are saying, "Yeah, yeah, sure, everyone can be a maker," but here's what making actually means. It's when you take this new technology and you like in your free time are just hacking away at it and mm. creating these things, which is great. I actually think that's a great yeah. um, geek culture that's formed around the, the ideas of taking this new cheap technology, getting a chance to play with it, understand it and creating something innovative. Sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's useless, but it's just really fun. Yeah. It's a great hobby, a subculture. But to say that this is what making means is to take away that intrinsic idea of like everyone creates things. Yeah. And to trademark it in this way is problematic because now you're saying 
you're not a maker if you don't do these things. Yeah. Um, what about your person who makes pottery? What about the person who grows plants in their garden? Right. Like, that's so making. You're right. making life. Yeah. Right? Like, what about um, the, the people who clean after all of us are gone for the day? Yeah. Um, people who make a living? Uh, Blue-collar workers who make because that's how they make their livelihood. That's right, yeah. Right? Um, somehow that gets disqualified from making. Like, yeah. if you have a hobbyist who learned to weld for the first time, they're like, bam, I did it. Right. We call that a maker. Right. And somehow the blue-collar worker who is a pro welder has right. been right. doing it all her life. Right. That's not a maker. Right. Because she's doing it for a living. Why is why do you think that what is what drives that do you think what drives that exclusionary attitude um, is it like funding is it is it you know that um, you know you're not gonna get money for doing something that's been around but you might get it if there's like a computer involved or is it uh, like a what I, I, I don't know I think there's a misunderstanding of yeah. how resources like you mentioned funding yeah how power is distributed. Yeah. We seem to think that it's a zero-sum game, that funding yeah. is something that is so limited that if we are not the ones who take it, mm -hmm. then someone else will and it will hurt us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the world isn't so simple, that things yeah. grow together organically. So we see this happening a lot with politics, that there is a side that says, like, you have taken power away from me, therefore I will take it back. Mm. And that breeds this kind of resentment. Mm. And I feel like that's sort of like the political climate we're in now, where people think that um, I'm losing power because other people are being empowered. And that's sure. just ridiculous. Sure. That power is something that's shared. And especially with a thing like making, the more we make together, the more that is made. Yeah. The more that is fundable and fungible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet people are still, like, afraid. There's this isolation, this idea that, like, this is my thing. Yeah. Um, that Make Magazine, because it was founded in Silicon Valley. Right. That, that suddenly the word make has to be defined according to Silicon Valley terms. Right. And I mean... It's one way of making. I think it's valid. It's yeah. wonderful. I think the community that's formed around it is great. But it's problematic that it's become this international so-called maker movement. And it's at that point that I really deeply question, what are we talking about here? Who yeah. are we including? Who are we excluding yeah. by speaking about making in this way? Um, and, and the thing is, like, I think that um, whoever's in charge of this brand of make trademarked right um is just afraid of losing that footing of losing that power and being able to command yeah. this is what it is and this is what is it's not so what i'm hearing maybe is that to, to you making is more of a way of thinking than it is a a movement of people who use microcontrollers and 3D printers and to it's it's not just about the tools it's about how the tools and the material and the people and the environment come together to to coalesce into a way of, of thinking holistically yeah. kind of like the the Native American culture things that you're or uh, uh, philosophies that you were talking about right mm -hmm. um, is that 
in the right na- neighborhood? It's closer, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I look at, so like learning is not something that happens exclusively in schools, right. exclusively out of books, exclusively anywhere. Right. The promise of the maker movement was that here is a way to learn that's so fun, yeah. that's open-ended. You get to do whatever you want, however you want. And then you learn surprising things without really reaching for a book that you had to read or a homework assignment you had to do. Um, And this exploratory way of learning seems so much more natural, but it's also nothing new. Right. We're just slapping new names on it. So John Dewey called this experiential learning. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Piaget called it uh, constructivism. Constructivism, yeah. Paver called it constructionism. Yeah. Vygotsky had his Mm -hmm. um, zone of proximal... development you have all of these yeah which is kind of related right yeah the social learning thing the zone of proximal development is basically what maker movements call now like what what hackerspace is like the the um uh you walk in ask a question right like that kind of culture of you want to know it then get someone to help you yeah huh so okay so then you said something interesting you said what the promise of the maker movement was as if did you mean that like in a past tense way like as in we've or was that just a different way of saying um i think the reason i used was yeah is because um uh when people first started started talking about the maker movement there was a lot of language around oh it's so democratic anyone can do it and you can do it any way um and i use it in the past tense because the way that it has been used has mirrored a lot of the same stratifications that we've seen across the board over who has power, over what qualifies as making, and um, therefore what is valuable to create. So um, we, this is is a problem that gets replicated. Um, So there there is a dominance of white middle-class men in mathematical sciences. Um, There is a dominance of white middle-class men in all the sciences, in computer sciences, in the physical sciences, um, in engineering, in technology, um, in programming, and now in making. Yeah. And that is the problem that we've Hmm. talked about so much of the promise of the maker movement. Yeah. And the reason I veer towards the past tense is because look at what is happening. Right. It's the same issue. In 2014, Make Magazine did um, a survey. So I think it was Maker Media, actually. Yeah. They did a survey of who are our makers? What do they look like? And according to what Maker Media defined as a quote unquote maker, mm. 81% of their makers were men. Yeah. The median age was 44 years old. Wow. And they made like $130,000 a year. What do they define as a maker, by the way? What was their, do you, do you know? People who read Make Magazine. Okay. People who are members of maker spaces. Okay. Um, people who uh, present at maker fairs. Okay. That was their definition. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, what that shows is yeah. that maker spaces are drawing middle class wealthy men yeah and that maker fairs are drawing middle-class wealthy men yeah and readers of make magazine are middle-class wealthy men yeah and so if if you yourself are doing the survey of who is a maker Mm -hmm. i look at that survey and go 
who did you think a maker was? What's your sample? Yeah. <laughs> How did you define yeah. maker on these terms when yeah. you went out to seek this? So the fact that th those were the statistics they came out with, I look at it and go, yeah. okay, well, clearly you did not count work that women are doing, right. work that children are doing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Work that people of color are doing, work yeah. that the poor are doing. Yeah. Your median income was one hundred thirty thousand dollars a year. Like, yeah. there's, there's some issue here. I think ninety seven percent of the people they considered makers had graduated from college. Oh wow, so, so this connects a lot with your work at Northwestern. Yes. And your work with with uh, Northside Mini Maker Fair. I think all the things you do are connected in some way. Any everybody's things. Isn't that true of everyone? No, right? right. Exactly. They're all connected somehow. So what's, let's let's talk about this again a little bit because I'm interested in this idea that um, the promise, what, what the promise was of this th thing, what we can take from it, and what comes, like, is there a thing that comes next or an alternative or what, you know, what do you, what do you see? Because this is there like... There are always wonderful prefigured worlds we can imagine. Yes, I would love to speculate. <laughs> I believe in a world where equity is possible, like yeah. real equity, where yeah. children are taught to listen to each other and respect each other, yeah. and where spaces for them to make are truly safe spaces, where they can share pieces of themselves, of their own cultural repertoires, mm -hmm. um, and not worry about being judged and talked down to say, this is making or this is not making, Okay. Um, which I've heard in youth spaces where and there's always the danger of that that you you yourself walk in as a facilitator in a space and you have an idea of what making you've seen in the past mm -hmm. and um, there's always the risk that someone's going to come to you with something so unique that you go is this making and right. we have to train ourselves as facilitators out of that too to be open to these ideas and to train everyone else in the space to be open to these ideas. Yeah. Um, when I work with kids, I see them sort of like constantly shifting, shifting their notions. We have conversations about what is a tool? Okay. Um, what is technology? Mm. Um, and kids will draw the line, the de definition in all different places. And they'll kind of be like, oh, I still don't, I still, really, you're, you're gonna count, you're gonna count fire as a technology. All right, yeah. sure. And then um, yeah. another kid would be like, no, technology is stuff that happens on computers. That is what technology is. Sure. Right? And then, no, like, isn't a hammer technology? Right. And having these conversations, I think, are really rich because I think it speaks to the kind of tools that speak to us. Yeah. The kind of tools that we're drawn to inform our concept of what is right. an innovation and what is useful. Um, and I think talking amongst... Um, your peers in an environment that welcomes that kind of argument gets us closer to an understanding of what um, everyone else is about. And that's where collaborations happen. And that's when you see projects where you start with something that's printed in 3D and then you decide that the girl working in plaster making is really interesting and you quote your 3D project in plaster. Yeah. And then you look at um, someone who's been working um, painting some kind of in, in this craft zone yeah. and go, oh yeah, now I want to spray paint this. Right. And suddenly you have this like 3D printed, plaster coated, spray painted, vinyl cut, like yeah. stamp dyed thing. And I'm just like, huh. 
so uh, what, what did you make? <laughs> right, yeah. But you're like synthesizing mm-hmm. things that would you would not imagine could go together and combining, and sometimes very interesting things happen from when you combine systems of things that don't seem to work together. One interesting thing that I, I think you're talking uh, that you mentioned is um, that it, the tool, what people consider tools, almost tells you how they like perceive the world around. I, I, I what when you said that, you know, or when you were saying something around that, uh, all I could keep thinking was the the analogy like when you're a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But, <laughs> but to people too, right? Because like yeah. if the tool, what that says to me is that the tool influences how you think, but also you and the way that you choose tools speaks to how you think just as much as the tool will change yeah. your way of thinking. It's almost like we're getting back to this idea that objects and the way that tools and materials and people, they, they all influence each other. Yeah, we communicate way. with the tools and the commu- tools communicate with us. Yeah. And also um, working with uh, an array of tools makes us think about the ways we can use tools in different ways. Yeah. I think it makes us our brains a little bit more flexible. And that's why I love building these communities. And I love building communities where people talk to each other. Yeah. So when I first built um, Maker Fair, for me it was really important. Number one, that was about the school. So it's based out of Schur's High School, which is mm-hmm. one of the largest uh, public high schools in the city of Chicago. It's also unique in the sense that it's massive and it's still a neighborhood school. Right. Um, that this is a school that's getting all of the kids who didn't get into magnet schools or private schools or like Lane Tech down the street. Yep. Great school. Yeah. Um, but Schur's isn't like that. Schur's isn't a school that gets resources and gets lauded. And um, for them, the Maker Fair is the one time Schur's High School makes it into the local papers. Okay. That they'll hear positive things being advertised. And um, it's run by students. They're milling around, volunteering, being helpful. And strangers will come in. Um, strangers to the school and say, wow, these kids are amazing. They're yeah. so smart. They're so talented. They're so helpful. Yeah. Um, and I think neighborhood schools get forgotten that these mm. kids aren't used to getting that kind of praise. Yeah. And that, I think, is just wrong because yeah. these kids are wonderful and talented and helpful. Um, so it's important that they have that opportunity to shine but also that they are sharing space with people who are accepted professionals, um, with museums and libraries and educators. And it's important to me when curating that space that there isn't like a room that's for the young makers, whatever that means. Right. It's a room of makers of a diaspora and then a room for messy makers. So the library can't have messy makers because it's carpeted. <laughs> there are certain co- right? constraints that you have yeah. to, right. And the cafeteria has messy <laughs> right. makers. Right. So like if you're going to be making some explosions or like making drippy things on the floor, yeah. that's where you belong. But that doesn't mean it's because you're a different type of maker. It's just because you're making a mess today. Yeah. Um, and that's the only way that I separate out the spaces. And then the outdoor spaces are like if I'm flinging things 70 feet across a lawn, you should have an outdoor space. How, how influential do you think environment is on what, what, what it is that we produce? Like you're talking about these different spaces, right? Messy spaces mm-hmm. and all. But so, so th- that's one microcosm of um, 
of, of the places that we encounter on a daily basis where we have the opportunity to make things, but they have to, they, I mean, just like having a hard floor versus carpeted floor speaks to mm -hmm. what can be made there. I would assume that all sorts of environmental spaces um, throughout a neighborhood, even if you look yeah. at it like on a macro scale influence, how much, what's the, like in the, um, I don't know. I think um, what you're yeah. getting at is context matters. Yeah. And the thing is, there's no way that we can create a neutral context. And that's okay. Right. It's sort of like I was saying, like, facilitation matters. There's no way you're going to get, like, a blank slate facilitator that's just going to be welcoming. We come in with our own ideas. Right. And if we didn't, we wouldn't be able to be good facilitators. Right, right. So we have to sort of balance being really knowledgeable and having all this stuff in our heads and going into a space and understanding that space and context matters. But yeah, the yeah, person who gets put outside is thinking about Maker Fair in a different way than someone who gets put in a carpeted area. Yeah. Um, we work with the space constraints that we have. I would want a more perfect space. I would want space that flows more readily because right now uh, people have to walk through these like narrow hallways, but I'm always like, oh, I want to fill this with stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no one wants to get stuffed in the hallway. They want to be where the excitement is. But I need some like leverage to push people between spaces. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes there's like one group that needs to be in a gym and one group that needs to be in a pool. And I go, okay, so how are we going to map this out? So um, I think about space nonstop. I think as a curator of something like Maker Fair, you have to constantly be thinking about space. Um, and there are things about the space that are surprising that you don't see happening where people end up engaging with each other in interesting ways yeah. and then you learn how certain projects fit in certain spaces and how other projects don't yeah um but what what i'm hoping to breed is this idea that like in order to be democratic um mm. we want to take away like ageism and classism and this ranking of what counts as making yeah. that if you're doing vinyl cutting that maybe you belong next to fossil making yeah. that belongs um, next to 3D printing, that belongs next to origami. I think origami and 3D printing are perfect matches yeah. because they're two nice. material forms of creating three-dimensional objects out right. of non-three-dimensional objects. Right. And for me, that speaks to each other. And, yeah. and like I'm hoping that they'll speak to each other in person as well as in materials. Um, so as a facilitator, are you, is that the way that you're encouraging that democratic effect that you're talking about is by putting things that other people wouldn't associate um, with the, each other near each other? What's the, what that's are the, one way that I'm yeah. suggesting that, yeah. that um, we shouldn't silo our thoughts about making yeah. in these like, oh, it's only making if it's a 3D printer. Right. There's this weird way that we seem to fetishize these like sexy new tools that are coming onto the market. Yeah. Um, and really what ends up happening is we end up buying lots of 3D printers that don't get used. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas I've also run into spaces where it's a floor filled with scissors, glue, glitter, cardboard, yeah. um, and it's amazing. Yeah. There's artwork that's done in um, cardboard that, and just paper that's incredible. Have you seen the Nintendo Labo stuff, by the way? No. Oh, it fascinates me. And then I'll digress because what you're saying is Nintendo Labo, but I got excited when you started talking about cardboard. Nintendo has their console, the Nintendo Switch, and the Nintendo Switch is essentially a screen 
with two controllers that you can attach to the screen, and those controllers have um, have sensors on them, so like a gyroscope or an IR sensor. And so they invented these kits that you can get now, where they're cardboard, and you fold the cardboard mm. up as if origami, and then you embed the sensors that are the controls uh, in them. Yes. And you put the screen. I'm just so fascinated by cardboard right now like i've started working with uh, it's who isn't fascinated by cardboard it's it's bendable and yet stiff yeah you can do so much with cardboard yeah yeah it's the classic prototyping tool right yeah absolutely right like why do we start with 3d printing that's a good question it makes no sense you start with paper and then cardboard and glue sticks so why do we start with 3d printing then because it's the new thing because it's the new thing i don't know and yeah the thing is, like, I, I think we think that by teaching 3D printing that we're getting kids into these, like, 21st century skills sure, because sure, it absolutely. uses a computer. But we can also get them into thinking about 21st century skills in terms of prototyping, in terms of design, in terms of creativity, innovation. Like, And I also, I also think there is this problem where we think making is only valuable when we create something that's quote-unquote new, whatever that means. Right. Something that makes us money, whatever that means. Right. When I look at young people that I work with at Schur's High School, they like to make gifts for their friends and family. Yeah. They like to make artwork. They like to make things that are of value to them. They're like, oh, there was this t-shirt that I saw. It was a really cool design. If I were to do it, I'd like make that skull, but like different. You know what I mean? And I'm like, no, I don't know what you mean. Why don't you draw it and then yeah. we'll vinyl cut it and then we'll put it on a sweatshirt. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, wait. So this is what I'm talking about. And then they'll yeah. download the image and then they'll do their own thing to it. And that is, that speaks to the kind of making because either I'm poor and I can't afford that yeah. or I want to do something that no one else has. It's something that I want. And even though making a t-shirt isn't innovative necessarily, yeah, it's still gateway into thinking about how you can disrupt the capitalist system yeah. of producing and buying, producing and buying, yeah, and think about making things for your own. And also when something's broken, they bring it in like a little yeah. broken bird. I want to fix it. That's that's. I've always thought it was a shame that we got away from hacking and we talk about making because hacking to me implies more of not just producing a thing from mm-hmm. from the ether like making you've made a thing but hacking implies that like you're tinkering with pre-existing things yeah. and you're taking systems apart and i think that's more interesting because uh it has more to do with understanding pre-existing systems and modifying them and making your them your own rather than producing your own system out of whole cloth one example i've used when i ex- try to explain this is um and then, because I'm interviewing you, so I'll stop talking again. But his, um, uh, when Google Fiber went into Atlanta, they, um, you're familiar with Google, Google Fiber, is this yeah, whole, you know, we're yeah. going to lay fiber optics all around the city. Um, so the city has all this infrastructure already to carry telecommunications. Yeah. But Google assumed, because they're a tech company who has that kind of West Coast kind of thinking, they just build their own new systems and they, you know, and so, the, you know, their their approach is very much, we're going to just do, we're going to make something out of whole cloth rather than trying to work with pre-existing systems. And what ended exactly. up happening is they, they never actually ended up delivering on their promise of wiring Atlanta because they didn't try to work with what they had. I think you nailed one of the critiques I have about yeah. this kind of what people call maker culture, right? right. It is this blinded individualistic thing where right. it's like, 
I am coming in, dominating the environment because I know better. Look at this thing that I've right. done. Let me rot, like yeah, right. Here like, we go. Rot this onto this world. Um, right. Yeah, and it doesn't work that way. We're failing to communicate with the material that we use, with the people within communities, the people yeah. that we serve. And I always think when I'm thinking about creating a makerspace, who am I serving? Who is my audience? Who am I speaking with? Or two and four. Yeah. With Maker Fair, I really like to live in the background. Right. I like to highlight the work of the makers. Yeah. And I like to retreat and see how they're talking to each other and to other people coming into the space. I like to create openings for people to have meaningful conversations about the work that they're interested in and the yeah. things that inspire them. And I also really like that so many of our kids are about care, that they do year after year maker projects not for themselves because they're like, you know, I have siblings who love this kind of stuff. I want to make slime because I think it'd be really fun for the little kids. Yeah. And they're doing it because they love kids. And that is a form of making care. Yeah. And I love that there's groups of both um, young women and young men who yeah. are interested in doing work for care for the young people in their communities. Mm. And I think that's so valuable. And why don't we have more spaces like that? Yeah. It seems to be all the people who I'm interested in interviewing for this seem to have a very similar, that's, that's what a common thread that I see is a lot of them, the reason I asked that first question is because most of it ends up being, I'm, I'm actually doing something for somebody. You know, I've asked the question, uh, Helen Lee, I interviewed her last week mm -hmm. and I asked her what's she making for herself and she said, well, I'm making a gift for my sister. And so that was like, <laughs> it's interesting because it was like, um, you know, immediate, what immediately came to mind is I'm making this for myself but really the, the thing that I do for myself is for others. Mm -hmm. well, I think that, that that's really interesting. Why don't we, why is that, is that a thing that we talk about a lot in, in this kind of space? Is that a thing that it needs to be emphasized more or? Um, I think maybe it's a sign that the people you choose to interview are people who are in tune with the, the social nature of their work. Yeah. And also that nothing exists in a vacuum. Yeah. That there is no one culture that we draw from, but this map of a plurality of cultural practices um, that we are constantly in engagement with and shifting our ways of thinking. Um, and if we continue to be making for others, we grow ourselves. Yeah. And like it's gotten to the point in my life where people will say, this is like I have a gazillion accessories. Yeah. And people say, oh, that's a really like cute pair of earrings. I'm like, oh, this was a gift. Or, oh, yeah, someone made this for me. Or yeah. like, oh, I love that pin. I'm like, oh, so a kid made that for me. <laughs> and it's because I think I'm always in these spaces thinking about who I'm making things for and experiences for. Yeah. People just gift me things knowing that I don't have the time to be making physical objects for myself, but because I build yeah. communities, that community backs me up and that community creates things for me. So, so if we're going to look at this speculative future where, you know, we move beyond what maker things have been, have, have done wrong and we, and we look at what these communities could be on a grander scale. So you've got a lot of communities here um, in, in the, the spaces that you're working in, What's the what's the version of that that scales up so that everybody can get included in in this? I look at the way that the maker movement first started in Silicon Valley when it was just like no it was a no frills kind of thing. Whereas a bunch of like old white guys who had a lot of free time, they um, were like, oh man, I really want to make stuff. 
yeah. got together, made some physical space, and made stuff together. Maker Fair initially was about showcasing that stuff and sharing it with the public, whatever that public might be. Who knows who might show up? Yeah. And it grew in interest and intensity, and it was awesome. And I see that happening at Schur's where we started this thing where um, hey who's interested and not everyone was interested in showing some stuff that they made yeah. um, people soured on me almost immediately like what you want us to do more work who are you <laughs> do you even work at the school what right. are you doing here right yeah and then um, we got some kids involved we got some teachers involved it was small the first year and people would wander in they're like oh, I'm not going to work on Saturday but yeah. I'll take a look yeah. They'll wander in for uh, 15 minutes, and then three hours later, they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> right. Um, right, right. And now it's become a part of the language of the school, yeah. that it's our fair. You know, kids will come to the principal's office and be like, you know, we have this we have this idea for our fair. Yeah. Um, people don't call it Maker Fair in that school. They call it our fair or yeah. our thing or our festival Yeah. because it belongs to them. And I think that's really important that um, – Mm. It's it's this to do something grassroots means that the people who are invested in in producing things for the fair think that it is their own yeah. and make it their own. And That's own interesting. It. One of the tensions I see is that if you like, there's an impression that if you want something to spread uh, uh, regionally, nationally, globally, and you need to have some kind of a centralized. Um, way of pushing things out, right? And and so, what's interesting is when you do things grassroots, it's, you're not really centralizing anything. Your community at Schur's is going to be different from the maker community that pops up at somewhere else, right? But 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 you do have this problem of like standardization of how do we get? Uh, if I'm Chicago Public Schools, and I know they're doing this right now, yeah. uh, they want to build maker spaces in all their schools, and what's the easiest way to do it? You find a vendor who will build a template of a maker space in any school for you know, safety reasons, environmental reasons, they'll say all that stuff. But when you begin to centralize things like that, you yeah. lose some of that diversity. How yes. do, so how do you but that's like reconcile saying, these things? I'll, I'll do another yeah. analogy. Yeah. Um, this is very close to my heart because I am a foodie. Yeah. I don't like the word foodie, but I, I'm a fatty. I eat a lot. Um, there we go. I'm a fatty. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so it's it's almost like saying, how do we make sure that there's a standardized way of eating when we allow anyone to make food however they want? Sure. Um, and so, like, I look at food in France and Italy and mm -hmm. India and China and Canada. Yeah. And so here we have all of this grassroots food making and if you look at it everyone's got like some rice thing yeah. some noodle thing yeah. some stuff that's in a package thing whether we call it a pie or a pierogi or a dumpling yeah. or a samosa like it's a it's a thing and a thing <laughs> for yeah. a package and then everyone's got like some vegetable thing everyone's got like a hearty stew thing that just comes across by being like, here's some stuff and we put it together. Somehow there is this um, really common thread through all of this stuff. And that thread is this basic notion of like, we needed a portable thing. We yeah. needed a thing for vegetarians. We yeah. needed a thing um, that is good to eat on a cold day <laughs> for comfort. 
and every single every single family has that kind of practice without really being conscious of um oh is it standardized between people but okay so i want to take that a step further then if i'm a school if i'm the chicago public school system and i'm providing food to children they definitely will standardize thing that that stuff and it always ends up being junk as yeah, a result exactly so, it ends up being awful <laughs> right. so when we standardize learning doesn't right. it end up being awful look right. at standardized testing it's awful right. standardized curriculum is awful right. it's because we fail to be flexible right. and the thing about that i love about food is that no one has tried to standardize it yeah not like on a global scale right. no yeah. one tries to think how do we make food in california taste like food in new york yeah. i mean unless you're mcdonald's Um, But as a result, we have plurality of food and it's rich and you get to try things if you'd like to try things and you get to stay safe if you like being comfortable with where you are. And that is cultural pluralism at its best, um, that we get to experience it on our own terms and we still get the nutrition that we need to survive. And I think if standardization i understand is a struggle but the thing that i think is a top-down standard when we have these stamps of vendors bringing in things yeah i think the stamp should be schools should have a physical space mm-hmm. that is open to change right if we're really thinking about maker spaces for schools yeah that's what the vendors should do that yeah. we create a space that's yeah. it and that space should have some kind of sitting stuff yeah. And some kind of standing stuff and some kind of surface stuff. Yeah. How you choose to make it, you could standardize that. You could say every school has 20% standing surfaces, 20% right. sitting surfaces, 20% working surfaces. Right. Sure. Let's right. have that. And then 20% space for tools. But let's not standardize this space gets two 3D printers, one laser right. cutter. What? Why? Right. <laughs> what if that's not what the kids in that space? want or the teacher the community yeah what if the teachers in that school don't have that particular expertise yeah if you have a teacher in one school who is um an engineer and you have another teacher in another school who is uh uh artist flautist sure flautist. yeah (laughs) right um you don't want the engineer and the flautist to have a vinyl cutter right how does that make sense? Right. The flautist should bring in some physical musical instruments, mm-hmm. maybe some tools to make musical instruments, mm-hmm. maybe iPads to remix music. Yeah. Because that this facilitator mm-hmm. is going to have an ear for, for sound. Yeah. The engineer should have a space for iterative design, right. for soldering, right? Um, for whatever he, she, they wants to bring into that space. Yeah. Um, but like in both of these cases, giving them two 3D printers and a vinyl cutter is not going to hack it. Right. Um, so that's that's what I think is really frustrating that we want to standardize. But then you're talking about, okay, so now you created a space. What are you going to do? Um, die cut a bunch of people? Mm-hmm. And right. they're like, teacher, 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 teacher. And then die cut a bunch of students? Um, that's not how the world works. So coming from above, I think what the standard should be is that there is a space that has X amount of surfaces to do types of things. And the protocols for the space should be, let's be safe. Let's Mm -hmm. be respectful. Let's listen. 
And for all of the spaces, and I think this is something you did very well with IRL, that you struggled with this funding aspect. Like, I had spent all this money. What do I spend it on? Mm-hmm. No one's told me what they wanted yet. <laughs> right. I'm really nervous about this. Yeah. So um, giving the standard should be give the school X amount of funding and say, why don't you play with this for a year and see what comes of it? Mm. Some schools are immediately going to buy a 3D printer because their kids are into it. I've been to schools where the kids have 3D printers at home and that's what they want to play with at school too. That's fine. And some schools are going to spend it buying a ton of art supplies and the kids are going to make murals on the empty walls. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then you start introducing things as it comes organically. Like the murals are going to spark conversation about other things. What if the mural is about the earth and how we're hurting our planet? And maybe that mm. evolves into an indoor garden. Right. What if the the um, garden then needs to be watered and we can't be there all the time? And maybe we have to come up with some like technological solutions to yeah. keep it fed um, during Christmas break when everyone's away. So. What I'm he- when I'm hearing all of these things, one thing that I imagine you have to have looked into when you when you're kind of researching these kinds of spaces and this kind of learning is because the question I always hear is then how do I validate its success? Right. This kind of does go back in a weird way to like why the le- why learning standards came about and, and everything yeah. else is if I'm a school, how do I validate that we're teaching things? You know, and part of this is because we're because schools are set up still to create people who contribute in an industrialized society as little widgets who can perform things, and so we're not thinking of people as lifelong yeah. learners. But how do you how do you build these kinds of spaces? And then, and I get this question even with the spaces here at DePaul sometimes is, and then justify it. Yeah. You know, what's the because that's a that's a real challenge. So one way to justify it is. I say Google doesn't need to justify 20% time for its engineers. Sure. They have 80% of the time you're working and doing the things that we tell you to do, and 20% of the time you get to do whatever you want. And in yeah. that creative time, we found that those are the most creative moments for Google employees. That's mm. where they come up with all of their innovations. So if we're going to talk about makerspaces in that way, mm. that's our 20% time in schools. Okay. They go to math, they go to science, they go to English language arts. They come to the makerspace, and that is their 20% time. Right. That is the time that they just get to be kids. They also have gyms, right? And the kids go into PE, and they're not learning how to take a test in PE necessarily. And but, PE, because it's gotten standardized, is super boring. Right, right. Well, yeah, what, I've always, what I always found interesting about physical education is I think that there's something between the body and the mind. And, like, my best ideas come to me when I'm, when I'm running. Yeah. And there's something between, like, having to use my body... And, and thought that almost ties directly to the, the same reason why tinkering is interesting yeah. is that like um, there's just something almost primal about mm-hmm. working with your hands just like there's something primal about using your body that gets your mind thinking differently. Um, yeah. Nobody ever asks like why do we have a gym though? You have a gym. You put a gym in a school. Because it makes you healthy. Right. How does it support curriculum? Oh, well then I guess we'll just backwards... We'll figure out a way to make it support curriculum. But then, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's crazy is that when we yeah. talk about curriculum and standardizations and yeah. testing, the first things to go, music, art, physical education. Right. Those yeah. things were the ones that got cut. Yeah. Um, because for some reason, if we can't test it, we don't want it. Like, yeah. those are the most valuable parts of our education system. Yeah. The time where we got to 
wind down and just be ourselves. And I think maker spaces, if anything, should be those spaces. The kind of standards we should have for those spaces is the standard is defined by the students. And mm. we create a space that is safe in not just in the tools that are there. It's not like, oh, our kid's going to cut themselves. Like, yeah, yeah they probably will. If you put mm -hmm. no scissors in there, they will scratch each other's eyes out. Right. <laughs> there isn't a culture of um, respect and um, also like this idea that when you walk in, there are certain things that you should be doing and attending to. Yeah. Um, that no matter what, there should be work that you're doing or at least helping others with their work. Yeah. And I know people have, um, there are teachers I know that have run successful maker spaces where they have to have grading of some sort. And that grading usually comes in the form of formative assessments where um, it's a combination of kids grading each other mm. and uh, you grading their work as a group. And then they are always um, given some kind of project-based thing. And the projects are very open-ended, sort of like come up with a, a question that you have that you'd like to solve in the world mm. and come up with a solution for that. Or um, something more specific, we are learning to use the ShopBot today, uh, this, this month. And so your project for this month is to create some piece of artwork using the ShopBot. It could be in this box. Here's here's a size, the three by three by three box. Right. This is what you have. Create something with it, and you grade them on their technical expertise using that particular tool. Like that's that's one yeah. thing to look at, um, but also not to box students in when they are using that tool, right. and then to give them the flexibility to think. Okay, then how do I how do I remix this when it comes to solving a problem that's really important to me. So you did a, I'm, I'm hoping this is connected. I don't know if it's going to be. You, you, you did this survey that you talked about with Pumping Station mm -hmm. One. So my first question is, what was the, what was the survey about? Um, so Pumping Station One, I'm gonna fill in a little background even though you know what it is. Yeah, yeah largest, please do. Yeah, largest makerspace in Chicago with almost 600 members. Um, and they were talking about like, who are our members? We have no idea. Mm -hmm. How do we have 600 people in the space? There's no way anyone's met all of them. Yeah. Um, let's run a survey. And then because I'm a researcher and I was sitting in the room at the time, I was sort mm -hmm. of listening in and giving a little bit of um, my thoughts on the situation. Um, the PR director came to me and said like, hey, what do you think about um, spending some time with us and helping us put this through? Um, so we looked at the questions they wanted to answer and came up with like, top 10 kind of this okay. is what we're interested in so the main goals were uh what does our membership look like who are they mm -hmm. um why are they coming to ps1 in the first place um what are the tools that they're using and how are they making use of the space and also what kind of improvements yeah would make this place better and um we ran the survey um and i think the results are the results are going to be public so i guess i think i can share that yeah. Right. The space itself is, uh, to quote one of the members, um, blindingly white male. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Seventy percent of the space is white male. Yeah. Uh, over eighty percent are male, um, and over eighty percent are white. Yeah. Um, and that overlap is also still huge, seventy something percent. Yeah. Um, and as a result, like when looking at the, the questions for improvement, um, one of the things that really stuck out to me was that for anyone who, there were so few people who identified as 
not a white male that I just clustered them all into this other category. <laughs> I had a white male section right. and an nah. everyone else section. <laughs> and looking at the white male section, yeah. the things that they wanted fixed were like, this space is a mess, the tools need upgrading, like yeah. someone someone should take care of this stuff. Um, that was like, by and large, the, the number one concern. Looking at the everyone else, the number one concern was the culture of the space. Mm. That there wasn't space to be anything but a white male. Mm-hmm. That um, there was uh, toxic culture. Mm. Um, that um, there wasn't like uh, women felt unvalued mm. in the space. Um, so there was a lot. That was the the number one issue. How do they? So the good. So I'm well, not good. I didn't mean that. I mean this is interesting because I, I I was hoping that it would connect with. It seems like it connects with a lot of the the work that you're doing. Yes. Um, and so I wonder, not good that this problem is happening. <laughs> um, but the thing is, it's yeah. not compensation one. It's right. right. Like, it's, if you look at the 80% male, yeah. doesn't that resonate with make uh, maker medias? 90% you said, yeah. Yeah, 80% right. male. 81% of our makers are male. Right. right. 81% of right. Uh, compensation one, actually more than that, <laughs> was male. So, so, so how did, uh, so what is... And interesting because we're getting up on an hour here, mm-hmm. and I think there's an, a question that I I don't know if there's an answer to, but that I have, which is then how do you go about? You've got this place that exists, and there are 600 people there. Yeah. A lot of those people who are happy with the space just want to repair. They want it, you know the things that are already there repaired and cleaned. Mm-hmm. And then there's another group of people who. Do, Maybe they want things repaired and They clean, do, too. I think but, the number two issue for them right. is let's get stuff cleaned and repaired. Right. But number yeah. one was... Let's fix this let's toxic fi- right. male culture. So yeah. what? So do you go about changing the that space, or do you go about having alternative spaces, or what's the way forward? Like if maker the maker thing was a good idea, do you take what it is now and, and change it, or do you go and make a new thing? I think you're asking two questions. Yes. It's change from within and change from without. Yeah. And I think it's both. Yeah. Um, I think there's a desire in PS1 to be a more equitable space, but the thing is no one knows how to make it more equitable. Yeah. And the challenge is, like, you don't go around talking about equity amongst, like, the dominant group. You don't ask people in power, how do we empower people who are not in power? Yeah. They don't know. They don't have the answers. They don't know those people. Right. But then to say to a place that is predominantly white male, like, how do we fix ourselves? You have to then ask the people of color, the women of the right. space, the people who are marginalized and minoritized. And part of the issue with that is they're not responsible for you. Right. This isn't their job. Right. This is a huge ask to say, how do we are fix ourselves? And it inevitably falls. The question of how do we become better? How do we become more diverse, more equitable? Inevitably falls on people of color. Yep. It inevitably falls on women. And also, women, white women, aren't equipped to answer how do we become a more welcoming space for women of color. Yeah. Um, so asking them to answer those questions is not only unfair, it's it's they they just don't know right um and i don't want to make the make the case that like we should put more onus on these people to to make change but at the same time like you have to ask them yeah you have to ask the minoritized members of your space how do we make this a better space for you right 
and listen and really make those changes and that's really right. hard to do that's a, a it's a especially a tough trick to pull when you're you bring a group of people together yeah and then people who um uh it, it just I, in my experience it creates a situation where you're you're um people may not want to speak up out of fear that, you know, they'll get dismissed or, yeah. or whatever else. To, and you have yeah. to create that safe yeah. culture. And it's yeah. really hard in a place where yeah. um, distrust has already been sown in some cases. Yeah. But in some ways, it's promising that these are the people who stuck around. And maybe it's because they want to be there to be that change. Yeah. Um, but it also really has to be supported. And every single time I'm hanging out of the space with a bunch of white guys who mm -hmm. are super supportive of me and listen to my opinions and value my voice, inevitably they'll say, Christina, tell us how we can make this space more welcoming for women. Yeah. And I go, well, to start with, you don't want to be talking to me with... <laughs> six white guys right. trying to answer this question. Right, yeah. I certainly don't have all the answers. Uh, in fact, I am not a female member of this space. Yeah. Um, maybe we should ask some of the female members of the space how we can make it more welcoming to female members. And that has not happened yet. Mm. Um, and that work takes time and it takes a lot of effort and listening and communication. That's not easy, not with a space mm. of 600 people who don't know each other. Much less a whole, I don't know what you call it, movement. <laughs> that that has the the you know it's just to me it seems like a microcosm of this larger but topic. spaces yeah. from without yeah. i think are just as important so yeah. i like to work i took my young people to um pumping station one for a tour yeah. i said you know what did you think about it were there any tools that you thought wow this is really cool i want in our space and they were like no i mean they basically had like the big version yeah. of the things that we have, which is kind of cool. That was nice to see. Mm -hmm. I, and I was like, okay, another thing I'd want to point out, and this is something that I think is problematic about all maker, adult maker spaces, is um, almost every single person we walked through was a white man. Um, yeah. And there was that one white guy who like decided to give you guys a spontaneous lesson because you know you can't possibly know things. And they sort of <laughs> chuckled. And I'm like, well, that happens yeah. all the time, yeah. this mansplaining stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> As long as we're on the same page. Yeah. Um, but I want to point out that that is something that I noticed. I don't know if you noticed, but it's always on the back of my mind. And here you are, a group full of brown kids um, who are very different demographically. And I want you to really be thoughtful about when we create a space that is ours, what do we want it to look like? Yeah. What does it mean to be a space of brown kids? Yeah. Let's think about that. Let's talk about it. Let's develop it. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think if we make explicit that we can create these alternate realities of spaces that it doesn't that like it doesn't have to be that a space has to serve all people right but it's important that there are spaces that serve collectively all people yeah and there, that's a good point. There could be places that you can enter, like school spaces should be safe for their students. Mm -hmm. And that's fine if you're not a safe space for other students, right. you're a safe space for your students. Right. So I think that is important to keep in mind, that I'm not trying to say pumping station one has to do it all. Right. If it fills a niche. However, when your own membership says there's a toxic white male culture, yeah you need to address it yeah um and so i think this this survey actually was um really nice it answered a lot of the questions i think 
that a lot of people suspected that the space had, mm -hmm. um, and everyone kind of interpreted the data according to their own biases about what they thought the biggest problems sure. were. Right. And I'm like, okay, yeah, of course we're going to do that. Right. Um, but let's just collectively think about the salient issues that came out from this survey and how we can address it. I think it's really promising. I think the board um, was very open to thinking about it. Yeah. I'm glad that I did that little project with them. And it does speak to my work. I usually don't work with adult maker spaces. Yeah. Uh, you know, I believe the children are our future kind of yeah, thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do. It's yeah. so cheesy, but I totally do. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm an educator because I love working with kids. And also, I just love the, the hope and the promise they bring to the table. Um, and how imaginative they are. And for, for children, it's easy to think of prefigured realities because they aren't stuck in, in the world of thinking this is how it has to be. Right. They're open to creating things. They're open to risk. Yeah. So I love youth maker spaces. Huh. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are... We but we've gone well over an hour, actually. We did good. Um, <laughs> well, that's so, what editing's for, right? Yeah, right. So one of the, the last things I want to ask is, um, where can people find you on the internet, or is there anything you want to point them to, or anything you want, <laughs> you know what I mean? What do you want to plug? What's your, what, what do you got that, that you want people to connect to? Oh my gosh, my the big thing I want people to connect to is to see what it is that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I think our Maker Fair is so unique because our, my, you know, my babies are unique. Yeah. Um, um, so that's Chicago Northside Mini Maker Fair. So uh, Twitter and Instagram, we're at CNS Maker Fair, okay. F-A-I-R-E. And then uh, our website, um, chicagonorthside.makerfair.com or just Google Chicago Maker Fair. Cool. And come by on May 4th, Star Wars Day, 2019. Ah, yeah. may the 4th be with you. I love it. <laughs> All right. Christina Pay, thank you so much. Um, and I appreciate all, all the time that you uh, gave everybody who's listening and, and me today. Thanks for chatting. Cool. This was a lot of fun. That was session 16, an interview with Christina Pay. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it with her. Um, please stay tuned. This should work. We've got a bunch of new episodes in the pipeline, a bunch of really cool people. Um, in the making space, both makerspace and making spaces, uh, who I'm going to be interviewing. Um, and we've got some special episodes about uh, developing and designing makerspaces that I want to share with you all too. Um, so uh, as always, uh, like, subscribe, do all that kind of stuff. And thanks for listening. See you all next time. Bye.